0: If you would turn there, please, I won't read the whole thing this morning because I've read the last two Sundays, but But leave leave your Bibles open. open. I'm going to be just working our way through about about the second second half half of of the chapter. And given that this is the very last message in the entire series of Revelation, uh, I'd like us to read this blessing together for the last time. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. As I've been saying since day one, the most important part of that blessing is what? Those who keep. Anybody can hear but we need to keep. That's a consistent message uh, throughout Scripture. (coughs) Excuse me. Book of, uh, the Bible, first of all, is, most of you know this, is not strictly chronological. You know, if you get to, if you ever read, first of all, a chronological Bible, you realize, hey, what's going on here? The, the prophets are, are mixed in. I'm used to the, you know, the historical books, first uh, and second Samuel, first and second Kings, but you'll find the prophets mixed in there because that's the time that they ministered. So it makes sense that they're there chronologically. But in a regular Bible, of course, you've got all the historical books, then you've got the prophets, so... Um, It's not strictly chronological, but but it is in in, in a large sense. And the book of Revelation is not only the last book in the Bible, physically so, but it's the last book chronologically that that was written. John, the author, most likely wrote his gospel five or ten years before he wrote the uh, book of Revelation. So it's not the only word we have. We've got the whole word here, but it certainly is the final word for us to consider. And as we come to this, the final message in this series, and, and I added up, it was uh, Rod asked me a few weeks ago, how many messages have been in that series? So I added up, and this is actually 40, uh, so uh, it's amazing. Uh, but I shared early on, especially, I was more than a little bit intimidated by taking on this book, and uh, so glad the Lord uh, led me into it. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, it is such a privilege, first of all open the Word of God and and share what I think uh, the Lord wants me to share, but uh, especially when you can go through a, a book like this. So I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Hopefully it's been beneficial to you. And just as the book of Revelation ends similarly to the way the Bible begins in Genesis, right, we've been talking about that for a few weeks, first two chapters of Genesis are pretty much mirrored for us then in the last two chapters of Revelation, So that begins from beginning to end of the Bible. So this last chapter is very similar to the very first chapter. Very similar. And the big message is that Jesus is preparing his people for what is coming. And that was true 2,000 years ago. How much more, right? How much more is that true today? Let me just give you a quick comparison here between chapter 1 and 22. The same themes. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ or a a testimony of Christ to show his servants or to show his churches things that are soon coming, and namely that Jesus is coming uh, soon. And then there's the blessing, exact same blessing for those who, no surprise, who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. So they are also bookends, chapter 1 and chapter 22. It's from Jesus for the churches, so that we can endure to the very end. So we're finishing this series this morning, but I hope you will never be finished with the truths found in this special book. So jumping in then, we left off uh, at number four here, point number four. Do not be surprised by the cultural, continual cultural chaos. Would you agree, first of all, that our culture is in continual chaos? And that's, uh, on a day-to-day basis, often what can bring us down, right? Some of you are news junkies. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but you know who you are. You are a news junkie. Some of you have sort of given it up altogether, uh, or as much as you can. I I talked to uh, a couple this morning, first service. They've gotten rid of their cell phones. I was like, what? I know. I'm I'm like, I'm in utter admiration of them, uh, truly. And they went back to just a, what do you call it, that? In the, and Yeah, that's it. Yeah, landline. In a house. Yeah, yeah, that's it. They went back to that. Uh, but no matter how much we, we try to avoid the news, we can't bear our heads in the sand. I mean, even if you don't listen to the news, you, you catch it. You, you know what's going on. Uh, we will feel the weight, to some degree, we'll feel the weight of the continual cultural chaos and degradation. Thankfully, we have answers here. Uh, turn your attention to verse 10 and 11. And he, the angel, said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. By the way, Daniel was told by the angel to seal up the words of the prophecy of the book. Just the very opposite, uh, because there was such a long time before that was going to be coming and before Christ was on the scene. But here we are told, Don't seal these up. We'll talk about that a little bit later. For the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the uh, um, holy still be holy. Now, at first glance, the first half of verse 11 could, could strike you as, as a little uncaring. Maybe it says, let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. Sounds like the author is sort of saying, well, you know what? All these people out there in the world, they're, they're headed to hell anyway, so let, let's just get out of their way and let it happen. And that's a, that's a harsh take on it, but it's not completely wrong. There's a kernel, kernel of truth to that. I think the author is restating what the entire book has been teaching us. And it's this, as the Lord's return draws near, and it's more near today than it was when we started this series, evil will continue to increase. That's a consistent message. And when we see the continual cultural chaos, it's comforting to know the Bible has already told us about it. That we know it's coming. Now obviously, talking about the news, the Bible is not a news outlet. It's not like we have Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro. We open it up and they tell us exactly what's happening, why it's so bad, and why it's going to get worse. The Bible is not that specific because the Bible does not need to be that specific. All we need to know is that God understands that evil is spreading. We don't need to know names and dates. We just we need to know that despite all of the evangelism in the world, despite all of our attempt to elect the best possible leaders, uh, despite all our efforts to change the culture, we can we will never stop the evildoers in the world. The evildoers will still do evil. We will still live in a world of cultural chaos. And notice the Bible does not shrink from calling it like it is. He he calls them evil doers, filthy. Evil doesn't happen by itself, you see. Evil doesn't just fall out of the sky. Evil people do evil deeds. That's what the Bible is saying. Filthy people do filthy deeds. And we cannot stop them from doing so. And then the language is perhaps even stronger. Verse 15. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. And everyone... Sort of a blanket statement. Everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, again, it it, it ought to strike you as harsh. You better not be called, you know, unless it's a friendly, like, you know, I say to Seth, you dog, you, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, You better not be calling somebody a dog in, in this sense. But Jesus did it. Matthew 7. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Strong language, it's a euphemism, but but he means it to be strong. Paul did it, Philippians 3, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers uh, combined there, right? Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, those who are trying to pervert the gospel. He says they're evildoers, and I would agree. But then the encouragement comes in the second half of verse 11. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Who are these righteous and holy people the Bible's talking about. It's believers. It's all believers. And it's sort of what, what Brandt said. You know, he didn't feel like a saint. You may not feel holy. You may not feel righteous. Uh, but you don't decide that by your feelings, right? Uh, it's a terrible way uh, to live your life only by your feelings. Uh, you decide it by the facts that if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone, he has declared you righteous. He has made you holy, whether or not you feel like it, whether or not you sin every single day of your life, and we will, we are declared righteous and holy. So the righteous and holy, what he's saying is, we'll continue to live side by side with the evildoers and the filthy. And again, it's not what we want. It's not what we would choose if we could, but it's a reality. And, and God knows it's going to continue to be the case. He, and he knows exactly what we still need to endure through that sort of culture. He knows our exact trials and our struggles. And not only everything else in the book of Revelation, but he specifically wrote to us the first uh, couple of chapters, the seven letters to the seven churches. Those, now, those were, were not imaginary churches. They were real historical churches with real issues happening. But they served as paradigms for Grace Church. What Grace Church needs is found in those seven churches. And because of this continual cultural chaos, you and I need to make sure that we are washed by the blood of Jesus. Verse 12 is yet another assurance of ultimate justice. So so all the culture, all the evil in the world, what's going to happen? Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We have encountered this same theme all throughout the book of Revelation that we see evil running rampant, we see the crushing of faithful believers, we see a mass martyrdom in the millions, but we also see divine justice in action. Now, We as Christians barely know what justice is, how much less the world. The world wants justice. They think they want justice. They think they want fairness, but they distort it all the time. I mean, I'm thankful for for some forms of true justice, whether they call it biblical justice or not, that exists in the world, because it's what keeps the culture from getting even worse than it is. But as a rule of thumb, they don't understand what justice is. For example, and you've seen this a bunch of times, in March, San Francisco City Council came up with this brilliant idea that we're going to uh, give you $5 million payouts as uh, reparations. And you think, oh, that's, that's a tremendous solution to uh, social injustice. And your, you add it up and it's like $250 billion. So reparations, we hear a lot about. I, I don't know if I've ever used before Revelation the word recompense in a sentence. It's not a word that we're as familiar with. But reparations and recompense are sort of second cousins to one another. And a confused sense of justice calls for impossible reparations. But Jesus will bring true recompense. His justice will be dispensed with pure knowledge and pure justice and pure righteousness. So therefore, recompense is a form of compensation. You see it in the word, right? Recompense, compensation, Like Paul said in Romans chapter six, for the wages of sin is death. So that means as you sin, you're earning a wage, uh, and that wage that you earned that you deserve is death. So if I, I'm going to hire Adriel because he doesn't have enough to do, and um, you're going to work 60 hours a week, for which is that's that'd be like that'd be easy, wouldn't it, for you, Um, for for three months. Uh, you're not going to get a dime from me. Now, Adrian's a nice guy, so he'll put up with it for a while. But eventually, he's going to be real nice at first, and he's going to start demanding, right? Pay me what you owe me. I want compensation for my deeds. I want wages for what I've done. Same idea here. This is what Jesus is bringing. His recompense, our compensation for our deeds, apart from him or in him. And if we, so he's giving us what is coming to us. And if we have not been, if we have not washed our robes in the blood of Jesus, the the the, later on it talks about those outside the gate. We're going to be left outside the gate. We're going to be cast out of the presence of God forever and ever. And sadly, those who are outside the gate are getting their recompense. They're getting their deserved wages and compensation. But those who place their faith in Christ alone not only do not get what they deserve, which is called normally what? Mercy. But we also get that which we do not deserve, eternal life with the eternal Jesus, which is a form of grace. 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and then they may enter the city by the gates. So my question for you is, Do you have the right to enter the city, uh, the eternal city of God, through the gates? Do you have that right? It's similar to the evangelism explosion question. I use this uh, occasionally. If you were to die tonight, why would God let you into heaven? Same idea. Or to use the language here, if you were to die, uh, just going home, uh, driving home today, why would God allow you into the city through the gates instead of being left outside of the city? Every person in the world must answer that question. What would you say? Bought by the blood of Christ, washed your robes in the blood of Christ, or something else? That's The, the, the first one is the only, the only right answer, that he has cleansed you of your sin number six suffering is temporary but blessings are eternal (laughs) praise the lord for that i mentioned a little bit of this story after my sabbatical but didn't go into a lot of details but last summer i spent a lot of money a lot of time trying to diagnose a lot of really bizarre symptoms i was experiencing and among other things i wore a heart monitor for a whole month, and, and all sorts of tests, uh, my heart rate was all over the place, and, and I'm, I will not even go on a list, just a really weird list of, of symptoms, but I would feel like it would come upon me very, very very suddenly, I would feel just absolutely rotten, I'm like, at first I thought I was, I was getting stomach flu because I was, I was nauseous, and I was like, like this fever all of a sudden, but I didn't actually have a fever, and I thought, what's going on, and went on and on and on, and uh, the final diagnosis in about, it was like every two or three days I'll, I would have these, these symptoms. And the final diagnosis was COVID-induced dysautonomia, which just simply means COVID messed up my autonomic nervous system, which affects pretty much all organs in your body, which is why I can get just a crazy variety of symptoms. Praise the Lord. It is so much better. You know, I would say it's – it's I, I get weekly things, but they're so, so mild by comparison. Only occasionally crops up because – some people that have this, it's a form of long COVID, are debilitated by such things. So the crazy thing, though, all through the summer, every couple days, uh, I would get sick all of a sudden. And then two or three hours, I'm perfectly fine. I mean, it was really, really strange. And, and we all know that, that feeling if you get really bad about with the flu or whatever it is and you're feeling rotten all week and you suddenly start—you start to feel better and you realize, hey, I'm all better. And isn't that a great feeling? Like, oh, man, this is, what, this is what it feels like to be healthy again. Well, I got to do that over and over and over every couple of days. I'm sick. I'm better. I'm sick. I'm better, you know? And uh, there became sort of a, a pattern to it. It was, it was bizarre, but, but, but true. And uh, so much so, Karen joked and said, uh, you are the epitome of the saying, this too shall pass. <laughs> and she was right. You know, as soon as it started to happen, I, I would just tell myself, and it was 100% accurate, I'm going to be better soon. I'm going to be better soon. If only we could have that same outlook in all of our lives. It's going to get better soon. Whatever it is, it's temporary. I don't know. It doesn't matter if temporary means days, months, years, or decades. For the believer, it's all temporary. It will get better soon. We must have that Level of confidence. This is the power of of striving for an eternal perspective. Now, in, in some ways, it's easy to live with an eternal perspective. How, how do I know you all live with an eternal perspective? You're not out murdering and doing mayhem every single day of your lives, no, right? Because in other words, you, you realize you're accountable to the Lord, and you're not just gonna, you're not going to do those things because they're so uh, they're so ungodly. Uh, they're going to send you to hell, and, and you're accountable to Him. so, so you don't do those. So you're living, by not doing those bad things, you're living with an eternal perspective. But the harder, much, much harder than that is the everyday living like this world is not our own. That we are literally strangers and aliens. That we're awaiting a heavenly city, a far better city. To live as if we hold loosely to our possessions and to our loved ones. Because we don't own them and we don't own it. Enduring suffering because we know the time is short compared to eternity. That's why it's an eternal perspective, right? Yes, this life feels long, but it is a blip in time. And the book of Revelation was written to help believers like us endure. It was written to give us hope. He says, uh, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you, Grace Church, about these things for the churches. Grace Church. It's for us. Number seven. Mercy is extended until the very last moment. Look at verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I, we, we saw the same invitation a, a chapter or two ago. Uh, based on Isaiah 55, I believe it is. It's a universal invitation uh, to, res- to repent and receive Jesus as your Savior. But what I love about this is we're at the very end of the Bible, right? Chronologically and, and physically, we're at the very end of the Bible. There's only a couple verses left, and we have this beautiful, universal invitation to repent and believe in Christ. It's beautiful. We have just seen the first few verses, first six verses, we have, again, peeled back the, uh, the, the, the curtain of heaven. Chapter 4, chapter 5, same idea. But here it's not just the curtain of heaven, it's the curtain of the celestial city, of, of the eternal city. Uh, of the new heavens and the new earth, and we see all that is there, God's life-sustaining throne, as we say, the seed of sovereign power and life-giving sustenance, sustenance, and the river of the water of life that is, that is watering the tree of life, and there's no darkness, there's no sin, and, the, and Jesus is the light source of light and all that is wonderful. So all that that we see, and, and it's really, do you understand, when, when you see that vision, It's you're, you're time-traveling, <laughs> you understand that? You are moving into the future. You're getting, what's the future going to look like? You know, time travel is such, a, such an overused sci-fi sort of idea, but, but it's time traveling. You get to see what the future for Christians is going to look like. But verse 17 then brings us back, after a glorious throne, verse 17 brings us now back into the present reality. What's going to happen right now? What's happening right now? It's a real-time invitation to take the water of life without price. That is so important. That is so important. Just had a discussion last, it was a week ago Saturday, a guy at the gym and uh, grew up in, uh, still is, in, in a Roman Catholic idea, and uh, he, he, he's never understood uh, that the official doctrine is faith plus works. Uh, so we're talking about Council of Trent and and all these other things, and, and he said he was going to home, go home and study it. So just trying to define for him that we it's without price. It's without price. We can do nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. And uh, if you, what he's saying here is if you're thirsty, what does it mean to be thirsty? You know you're a sinner and you thirst for the water of life, for the solution. You're actually thirsting for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is technically an invitation to unbelievers, but it can also, by extension, be an invitation to all believers that you continue to draw from the water of life, right? We say you continue to preach the gospel to yourself every single day. You're drawing from the well of the water of life. If you're thirsty, now is the time to... To receive him because Jesus is coming soon. He said it three times just in this one chapter. And when he comes, it's too late. Mercy is extended until the very last moment. When he comes or until you die, it is too late to repent. I'll never forget my dad's final hour of his life. I can't recall if I've shared all the details of this story or not. But he had leukemia. He was in remission Twice, and they're putting a, a stent or whatever you call it uh, surgically in, and punctured his lung, and he's he's bleeding out. He's in post-op. Uh, he's bleeding out. He's still intubated. He's in Ohio. I'm in Wisconsin. Uh, he's going to be dead in about an hour, and uh, my sister, who's a nurse, was there. Puts the phone up to him. He can't talk, but he can hear. He's fully conscious. So it's like the you know he it's his last hour. I know it, he knows it, everybody knows it. It's like the the ultimate, what are you going to say? Well, Dad, I love you. Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus? I begged him again. He may have. He may have done it before. There 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 was some fruit there. Until your last hour, don't wait though. Until your last hour, you can receive the Lord. And until then, we can share it with others. Number eight. God's word is sufficient and settled, but not sealed. So I'm going to define those words. Sufficient and settled, but not sealed. Verse 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. As I reflected upon these verses, I, I came to the conclusion that the I'm not sure the average person is sufficiently frightened by these verses. Because if you take away or add to God's word, you miss out on eternal life. Verse 17, as I just said, is the the final invitation to to come to Jesus, and these verses are the final warning. Now, why is adding to or subtracting from God's word attached to an eternal punishment? It is so serious because you are changing his word. You're changing the eternal truth. You're altering the very word of God, which turns you into a false teacher. And we have to be aware because I don't don't think most of us here are, are going to intentionally... Uh, do that, you know, chop things out, etc. Uh, we, can, we can ignore things. We can overemphasize certain things and underemphasize other things. But another thing to be warned, be careful is taking in teaching from those who are, are, are changing, right? Who are changing uh, the Word of God. Now, famously, uh, a person that did this was Thomas Jefferson. You might have heard of this. He created his own Bible that he called the Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jefferson literally took a knife to the Bible, chopped it all up, and he would, for example, include the man born blind in John chapter 9. You know what he conveniently left out? The part where Jesus healed him. So it, it's that sort of thing. And here's a, a picture of it, and it's like four languages side by side. And if you zoom in a little bit, he's he's uh, the bottom half there is is Matthew 3. And what he does, you see here, he's got... Verses 4, verses 5, verses 6. And then, I think I cut it off, but then it jumps to verse 13. Uh, so, uh, it says, they've come to him to be baptized by Christ. And you're like, well, what's in between 6 and 13? Well, let me show you. Confessing their sins. Goes on to talk about um, all things related to unquenchable fire. And the dangers of hell. And needing repentance. All of those difficult Parts of the Bible. He got got rid of of, of all of those. And Jefferson did exactly what most people do today. They, They sanitize Jesus. They remove his deity, the call to repentance, the necessity, the absolute necessity of placing your faith in him alone. And we have here the most severe warning against doing exactly what Jefferson did. Everyone should heed this warning for themselves. And you could say that those who, who do subtract or add to the Bible, do you, do you see that they've already, they've already cut themselves off? It's not as if God needs to cut them off. They have removed the truth. They don't understand the truth, and thereby they have cut themselves off. But it's not just a warning. There's actually a promise here. Because if you cannot add to or subtract from the Word of God, that means that the Word of God is fully sufficient in its present state. It's complete It cannot be changed. It cannot be improved upon. So the sufficiency of Scripture, which itself is is a formal doctrine, is the positive side of this warning in Revelation. The fact that Scripture is sufficient means that you and I have all we need to know to know Jesus, to come to Him in faith, to live our lives by faith and endure through all sorts of trials, to know that suffering is temporary because blessings are eternal. We're waiting for Him. Now, you've said it probably sometime in your life, once if not more times. You're you're reading something, you're you're in a Bible study, and you you say, man, I really wish I, I knew the answer to that. Well, you know what? I'll find out in heaven. Maybe you will. Maybe you won't. But what matters is we don't need to know those things right now. What matters is to be reminded that God's word is sufficient for what we really need. And if we need more than what was in this book, he would have put more in this book. He has given us exactly what we need. He's given us serious warnings about changing any of it. And if it cannot be changed, then it's sufficient. And if it's sufficient, then, then it must be obeyed. It must be obeyed. That's why we start every message in this series With the promise, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who say it. Keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So that's what I mean. It's sufficient. It's settled. You can't change it. But it is not sealed. And we're we're told that, right? The angel says, do not seal it up. And by sealing, what I mean is don't close it. Don't don't keep it yourself. It's meant to be set forth. It's meant to be proclaimed. It's sufficient for all you need, uh, but never Close it up. Number nine. A true servant is eager for their master's return. After all the wars that we've seen in this book and wrath and martyrdom and all the glorious wonders of this book, it it just makes sense that it ends with the deepest longing for Jesus. He who testifies to these things says... Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, many people associate. Uh, do, you, do you know uh, a word that is associated with this? Come, Lord Jesus. That ring a bell for anybody? It's actually a, the name of an old 1970s musical publishing group. Maranatha. Maranatha, right? Uh, we tend to think. It, it literally means our Lord come, is what Maranatha means. Now, Maranatha is. An Aramaic word that has been used since the early church at, as a greeting. And probably what happened is a, a transition from, you know, if you, if you were Jewish and you would greet normally somebody, and they still do to this day, with shalom, peace. But these new believers, and many of them uh, are, become, are Gentiles, right? that are being brought into the faith. And they're looking around them in massive persecution. They're like, where's the peace? Ah, peace is coming. Come, our Lord. Come, our Lord. So it became its own sort of greeting. They, they became Maranatha people. It's not unlike what the, the, the Negro spirituals, as, as they used to be called, or black spirituals, whatever they call them now, um, that they would sing in, in, the, in the fields because it's all they had was hope to, to, to their, their coming Lord one day. Now, John here in Revelation 22 is not strictly using the word Maranatha. That only occurs one time in 1 Corinthians 16. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come, which is Maranatha. So it doesn't matter, though. Even though John is not using the the specific word, he's using the spirit of Maranatha. His heart was was crying for Maranatha. It's really, it's a rallying cry to to look to the heavens. Just as the angel said, as, as Jesus ascended to heaven, why are you looking up? He will come again just in the same way. He's coming From the heavens. And he's coming soon. But that's the difficulty. We we have that word soon over and over. But why is he not coming? When we think about the return of Christ. We we need to be so careful. that, That we do not fall into becoming a scoffer. Like those that Peter talked about. Peter wrote this. Scoffers will come in the last days scoffing. That's what scoffers do. They come scoffing. Following their own sinful desires. They will say. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, I don't think it's even true. Now, And I don't think that we here are scoffers in this, in this more serious sense. But we start to wonder, why is it taking so long? We wonder about the promise, the same promise spoken by Jesus again three times in this final chapter. We want to believe it, but the trials of this life and the the chaos in the culture uh, do not allow us to see it with the the right sort of vision. And we wonder, when's it going to happen? Randy Alcorn has a helpful story. It's a true story. Uh, I'm just going to read it to you. In 1952, Young Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly. Anybody up at 6 a.m. this morning? Absolutely pea soup. So it was like that or worse. Foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother, in a boat alongside, told her she was close and that she could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than a half mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. You and I need to see the shores of eternity. But that fog is in the way. The fog of the culture. The fog of our sin. As we sang this morning, though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, we've got to ask the Lord to help us peer through the fog and to see those celestial shores and not just the shores but more importantly right none of it matters unless king jesus is going to be there and he is coming and he is coming soon we need to have a maranatha mindset an eternal perspective otherwise it otherwise we will not endure I'd like you to stay seated and we're going to sing about a Maranatha mindset just briefly before we move into a, a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. But mine is armor for this battle strong enough to last the war and he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the King I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure, Christ is mine forevermore.